0: Good morning. Today's scripture is from Matthew 25, verses 14 through 46. For it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward, His master said to him, "'Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master.' He also who had received the one talent came forward, saying, "'Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed, so I was afraid. I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours.' But his master answered him, "'You wicked and slothful servant, take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents.' Cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to see me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks, Joss. Good morning. Wow, that was, that that could do some redoing. Uh, Let me try it again. Good morning. Yeah, much better. Thanks. Uh, You're out there. My name is Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer City. Uh, And we are continuing in a series. We're finishing today, actually, on the parables of the kingdom in the Gospel of Matthew. We're continuing this theme uh, that we saw last week, actually. So if you weren't here, uh, it's okay. The beginning of Matthew 25, different parable, but all the theme of being ready. So the question is are you ready? Uh, Last week it was, Be Ready, but this week it's, What Does That Readiness Look Like? Uh, And you'll have to come back next week uh, to find out what's next after these parables of the kingdom from Matthew. Uh, And what we've been doing is looking at various aspects of a culture that gets created in the life of the kingdom, that the life of the kingdom makes possible. The kingdom is here, but it's not yet fully here. Uh, And so the church becomes a window into which the world can look and see a people being formed who do these kinds of things that we've been talking about. So uh, a people who listen, a people who hope, a people who grow, a people who celebrate, a people who forgive, give thanks, repent, bear fruit, and live in joy together. All of these things as we await the coming of Jesus. That's the culture that we're after. That's the culture we long for. And so, as I just said, Matthew 25 is about a life of readiness. It's about what does it mean to be ready. If we're called to be a waiting people, a people ready for the master's return or the bridegroom's return or whatever picture you want to think of, and Jesus uses several, is it just sitting around shooting the breeze with each other? Uh, Or is it like waiting for a wedding reception to start? You've all been to the wedding receptions uh, that you just kind of waiting, when is this going to get going? And you're waiting on the bride and the groom, or you're waiting on pictures, or you, or is waiting more like getting called up to the major leagues, waiting to get called up to the major leagues, which means you're training, you're practicing, you're working, you're every day waking up hoping you'll get the call. Are we active or passive in our waiting, in our readiness? And what I think we learn uh, today in particular uh, is that we are certainly called to not be passive, and the passive, uh, as we'll see, is uh, is not viewed very positively. So what we're going to do is look at a well-known parable, or fairly well-known parable, some of you may be familiar with it, some of you may not, and followed by a very sobering picture of what we commonly refer to as the last judgment. Uh, and so if you're new to the Bible or Christianity, these are hard truths, uh, Just gonna just going to be honest, Uh, I hope that you actually come away encouraged today, uh, even in the midst of these hard truths. But if you're here and you're not a Christian, uh, or considering Christianity, wondering uh, what it's all about, please, please, hear these realities we're describing uh, and and consider them. Uh, They are realities. Uh, They are true. Uh, But be be sobered by them. So the two points that we're going to look at are the two points in your, your outline on the insert, Uh, That we provided for you in the worship folder. Uh, And you'll see them there. And these are the two stories that we're going to be looking at. So first, a man entrusted his property. uh, Looking at the differences in this parable between the first two guys and the third guy. As well as the response of the master to them. And then secondly, and following that, uh, on the heels of that is the question of are you a citizen. uh, Because the kingdom is reserved for citizens. Uh, What's it look like to be a citizen? How do you know? uh, Where's the ability to do what he describes uh, in the sheep and the goats to be a sheep? Where's that come from? Uh, So we're going to look at those in turn. So first, uh, a man entrusted his property. Verse 14 begins, uh, and you can either uh, follow along on the insert. Uh, If you want to look in the Pew Bible, it's page 830. Uh, again, maybe helpful to just see it in the in the context of the whole or uh, the Bible that you brought with you. But in verse 14, Jesus says, for it, that is the kingdom, still thinking about, still talking about the kingdom, for it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. Uh, what's it mean to entrust something to someone? Uh, it's important to note that because it has implications for the rest of the story, and it means to charge or invest with a trust or a responsibility. So the master gives the servants something of his for their well-keeping. It's his property, Jesus says. So he would expect, with his property, to be able to tell them, do with it as I expect or want you to do. And right out of the gate, we're challenged with a spiritual lesson, or we're confronted, I should say, with something. Living ready is knowing that what you have doesn't belong to you, it belongs to someone else. And all of life is a gift. These are grace gifts, uh, in fact, that the master gives. The fact that he gives it indicates it's a gift from him. Paul asked the Corinthian church, all of life is a gift. What do you have that you did not receive, right? We're all servants at the end of the day. That's it, the word that Paul, or excuse me, that Jesus uses here is "slave." In fact, so we should be humbled by that. There's a master; we're servants. He tells us and expects us uh, to do with his property what he wants. Nothing that we have is something we've produced or gotten on our own. As we read Friday in community Bible reading from First Peter four, it's God's varied grace. I love that phrase: His varied grace. The master handed out the talents to each according to his ability, and so that should humble us uh, as we begin to consider. So what are these talents? Well, I think if you look at the context of the whole of of Jesus' ministry, Jesus' teaching, his parables, and they indicate these are sums of money, yes, talents, uh, but they represent endowments and opportunities and gifts in service to the kingdom rather than natural talents per se. Uh, you can certainly make a case that we don't want to waste the natural talents and abilities we've been given. Yes, absolutely. Use them for the glory of God. Paul said, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all for the glory of God. But in this context, in the context of the parable and talking about the kingdom, these are kingdom opportunities, kingdom investments. So investing them or trading with them consists in faithfully discharging our responsibilities as disciples, whether those are small or great. He gives one guy five, he gives another guy one. It's the master's duty, or excuse me, prerogative, I should say, to allocate the scale. It was the slave's duty to carry out faithfully whatever role was entrusted to him. Now, what do the servants do, having been entrusted a share of the master's property? Well, look there. To one, verse uh, 15, to one he gave five, to another uh, two, and another one, then he went away. What happens in verse 16? he who had received the five talents went when? What's it say? He went immediately. He went at once. He didn't waste any time. In fact, both of these guys, they commit their work to the master, they get to work, no wasting time, and they double the master's investment as a result. These two servants, they seize the opportunities that are afforded to them. The question is, of course, why? Why do they do that? Well, I think at least in part, they're operating on the basis of gratitude. When the master returns, look at their response. They cannot wait to share with him what they have been doing, what they've accomplished with his investment. Master, you, you gave me these five. Here's five more, right? They work hard because they're grateful for the opportunity that's been given to them, but also they know the expectation of the master. Here's my property. Now do something with it, right? That's the expectation. They don't work to earn more talents. They didn't earn the ones they started with anyway, right? They simply want to honor the master. And and so with us, I think the lesson for us, the question the parable asks us is, are you faithful? Are you being faithful? What does faithfulness look like with the opportunities that are afforded us? Not so that God will entrust us with more, But because we love him, and out of a love and service to him, it becomes pure joy to serve him. Notice that when he, we'll get to this in a second, but his response to them is not, well done, good and faithful servant. Here's a paycheck, right? Uh, Or here's, you know, uh, some other monetary reward or physical reward. He says, enter the joy of your master. And uh, as doesn't happen to me frequently because I don't preach frequently. Uh, but I've had enough conversations with Drew to know this happens to him a fair bit too. You know, you get into something and then you prepare and then you maybe even go through the first service and then you realize, oh shoot, I kind of I kind of wanted to go a different direction or I wanted to emphasize something that I don't get a chance to emphasize. But oh well, I, I I've only got a certain amount of time. I can't really emphasize that, but I really want to hit, I really want you to focus on, highlight, underline, put in bold somewhere in your notes this enter the joy of your master. I really think that's what it's about at the end of the day. Uh, and I will say a little bit about that in a, in a minute. Well, what about the third servant? Okay, the first two, they get right after it, but the third one omits any commitment to working. He doesn't produce anything. What does he do? Uh, verse Verse 18, but he who had received the one talent went, dug in the ground, and hid his master's money. Well, why? you got to ask why. Well, thankfully, he tells us why. Look at verses 24 and 25. He who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seeds, so I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have What is yours? He says, master, I knew you to be a hard man. And in Greek, that word when used of a person means stern or severe, right? Do you enjoy being around stern or severe people? Most of us don't, right? But the problem is his belief about the master, which wasn't based on reality, it was based on unbelief and fear because he says it. I knew you to be this, so I was afraid, He's described by the master as lazy, which means he was hesitant to go, uh, to, to, to go or do any way, uh, anything with the opportunity afforded him, with the talent, the property that he had been so generously gifted with. Why? Because he's so
0: afraid.
1: And if you think God is like this guy describes him to be, then you'll be just like this guy is. If you believe the master to be a hard man, severe, harsh, stern. See, the the, the third servant wasn't convinced of the goodness and generosity of the master's heart. He didn't believe the master was good or kind. He didn't see the talent as an opportunity to be explored and celebrated and invested and multiplied. He saw it as a liability to be protected and kept to himself, Because he was selfish. So the question for us is, who do you know him to be? Who do you believe him to be? He says, Master, I knew you to be. And his sentence ends with the words, so I was afraid. See, a life motivated by fear doesn't risk. It's passive. These guys took risks in going out and investing the talents. To to trade in the ancient world was risky anyway. Well, the trade today is risky, right? But the master commends their riskiness, their courage. If you believe God to be hard or stern, then you'll be afraid that he's sitting there just waiting for you to mess up, right? Ready to whack you on the head like a cosmic game of whack-a-mole, right? But you'll also be jealous, and envious of those who have more than you, so you'll hide and hoard what you do have because you see it as yours and you don't want to lose it. But here's the thing, it's not yours. Who you know him to be is directly tied to how you use his property. Back to First Peter four from Community Bible reading on Friday. First uh, Peter says it's God's varied grace that allocates. The differences in each of us. And so we can celebrate those differences as a result without jealousy or envy. Because Peter says everyone has received something, right? The, the only way to use what you've been given is through service. The third servant doesn't serve anyone other than himself because he's full of self-preservation or he's acting out of self-preservation. But what's the reality? Okay? Now, hear me. This is where we're going to get to the the, uh, the joy part that I wish I had pretty much done the rest of the sermon on, uh, and, and now having listened to the far kingdom twice, um, I'm even more struck. But the reality is the master is not hard or stern. What does he say to the first two guys? Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. What joy is he talking about He's talking about the joy that Ryan and Lauren were singing about earlier in the far kingdom. It's this far kingdom. You know it's there. It's the kingdom that is being brought near and made more and more real is what we've been talking about this whole series. Becoming a people who are like all of these things. Go back and listen to all of them. If you're forgiving, if you're kind, if you're joyful, if you're celebrating all the things, then you're in the joy of the kingdom. You're experiencing, and you are helping others to experience this far kingdom that's on the other side of the glass, and we can see it by a faint light, right? But when you drink the joy that flows from the fount of the king, or when you drink it, you'll find it's ever full. Uh, it, it 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 will ever, ever, uh, I can't remember the words. Uh, I should know it. I know, know the whole song by heart pretty well, but I can't remember it. As I'm standing up here, uh, but there, the point is, it's a fullness. And it's a fullness that you experience in the joy of the master. If the kingdom will be a re- wedding reception, as we heard a couple of weeks ago, then the faithful worker will get to share in that joy, in the kingdom, because the master is so generous, he wants it to overflow and have all who come in experience it. He invites us into that. He's not a killjoy. That's what the last servant believed he was, so he hid. But the king we're talking about is a generous king whose varied grace results in all kinds of talents among his people as they serve one another and then ultimately the world. As we'll get to in a minute, Jesus says, if, if you're not doing this to the least of these, my brothers, uh, then you certainly won't be doing them out there amongst the world. Now, the master's response to the third servant, we can't escape it before we move on. It's in verse 30, and it's very sobering. He says, Cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. To get into hell, just do nothing. Matthew 25 seems to highlight the sins of what we call sins of omission. It's just simply not doing, not being prepared as the ten foolish virgins weren't. It wasn't that they were doing something. It's that they weren't preparing. This third servant in the parable of the talents, it's that he does nothing with what he's been given. And the goats in the next story say, when did we? And Jesus says, well, when I was this, you did not do this. When I was this, you did not do this. Hell will be full of neglectful people. That's the lesson of this chapter. But Jesus isn't finished. He, he tells one more story. And if you had been sitting there listening to him uh, as, as he's talked to the scribes, as he's talked about the signs of the coming of the Son of Man and all of these things, and then he goes and begins with these words. When the Son of Man comes, this is verse 31, in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Well, that'll perk your ears up on it. What's he talking about? The question is, are, are you a citizen of this kingdom? Because when he invites the sheep, he says, verse 34, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the what? The kingdom. So I think the link between the two stories is this. The master's interests, the king's interests, become those of the servants who are following him. And his interests are the things that he outlines in this story. The joy they have for the work, the joy they're entering into, shows itself in who they set their life upon. We read it earlier from Micah 6, verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To do justice, to love kindness, is the same word for steadfast love, and to walk humbly with your God. Commit to that work. Uh, And you will bring glory to God. You will be in the joy of the master. Well, what, what he doesn't say here is also telling. He doesn't say, come, you blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom because you voted a certain way in every election. Or because you belong to a PCA church and not a Pentecostal church. Or because you faithfully followed community Bible reading for years. Or because you never cheated or lied. He doesn't say that. The evidence for their citizenship, what reveals them as sheep, is their service to the least. And so whatever talents or resources of the masters have been entrusted to you, the question is, the way he can tell that you know him to be a person who is generous and kind and merciful, whether you know him to be who he really is or whether you know him to be something he is not, will reveal itself in the type of person you are becoming and investing yourself in. Are you becoming a kind, generous, and merciful person who invests themselves into kind, generous, and merciful work? Multiplying that type of work. Now, both the sheep and the goats say the same thing, but they say the same thing for very different reasons. So if if you look there, Jesus says, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, for I was... Sorry, I can't see. Verse 36... I was hungry, and you gave me food, and so forth, then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry? It almost seems like a surprise to them, doesn't it? Well, why is it surprising to them? Well, because that's just the way they did life. Their salvation didn't depend on their good works. Their salvation resulted in their good works. It simply, their salvation flowed out of them into good works, Their kindness and mercy to the least of these wasn't in order to gain a reward or merit, salvation. It was part of the way they lived, right? They were responding to what Jesus had done for and in them. Jesus says here that the work of mercy is work unto him. It's done as if it's done to him. Love for Jesus produces a love of mercy and deeds of justice and kindness, and so forth and so on. And what's more, they don't seem to be self-conscious of what they've done, I think, because there's no pretext or phoniness to what they do or to how they live. It's a genuine and real experience because it's a genuine and real salvation that they're living out of. The goats, on the other hand, say the same thing. Lord, when did we... They're surprised as well, but they seem to not be conscious of having failed to serve the least of these It's really not about any heinous crime they've committed. It's not about something that they've actually done. It's something they have withheld. Something they've omitted. It's a chronic and habitual failure to love at the end of the day. To get into hell, just do nothing. See, kingdom citizens practice these types of things because the kingdom points to a place where they don't exist. The church Points to the kingdom. It's a window into which the world can look in and see a people who care for each other in such a way that there are no hungry, there are no thirsty, there are no imprisoned, there are no strangers. Or at least when people find themselves in these situations, they're not alone. The story ends, Revelation 21 and 22, where there's no more crying, no more tears These things don't exist anymore, and we long for and look forward to the day when that will be the case. As we say, the world is not yet what it one day will be, but it's becoming different every day from one degree of glory to the next. These things must be done within the community of faith. That's how Jesus says the world will know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another and are caring for one another in this way. The passage from 1 John we read earlier reminds us a person who's experienced God's love for them in Jesus Christ is a person who sees need, they open their heart to that need, they move to act on that need. He says, how can the love of God exist in a person who sees their brother or sister in need and closes their heart? This is impossible, right? What am I talking about? Let me just give you a couple of examples from our congregation. Okay, So be encouraged by these things. And if you're not part of this church, let me just say to you, it's a great place to be a part of because these types of things are happening, right? Not just in this church, but all the churches around our, our, our city, right? Because the church is evidencing the kingdom. I'm talking about things like driving every week to a neighboring town to serve the needs of the children of a widower. I'm talking about paying a mortgage for another family while they're in a financial crunch. I'm talking about driving homebound members to a midweek Bible study. I'm talking about helping a single mom with fixing her only vehicle. That's good work. And Jesus says that how you treat people, especially his people, who find themselves in those types of circumstances, reveal how you treat him. Your attitude toward them is your attitude toward him. So in each of those examples I just listed, Jesus is saying, that's me. You are doing that to me. On the road to Damascus, it, it, you may recall, he told Saul that Saul's persecution of the church amounted to persecuting him. He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting, who does he say? Me. That's how closely he identifies with his people. Because he's been in the identification business Since the beginning, Jesus has. He identifies with us in our shame, in our guilt, and in our sin. Not only does he identify with us in those things, he becomes those things. And in becoming our shame and our guilt and our sin, as we read earlier, he takes them from us and casts them into the depths of the sea. What great news, right? He was so willing, in fact, to be identified with all of these groups, the ones he lists here, that he not only became some of these actually, he was actually poor and marginalized. He was actually naked, hungry, thirsty, falsely imprisoned. On the cross, though, he stood in the place of all of his sheep, because at the very least, all of us are spiritually bankrupt, spiritually hungry, thirsty. We're all strangers to the kingdom of God until he brings us in, right? We're all of those things. And on the cross, he stood in our place and paid our debt. There's a great book called Generous Justice uh, that uh, a guy named Tim Keller wrote a few years ago now. But he says in the book uh, this. Many people say, I can't believe in God when I see all the injustice in the world. But look, look, here is Jesus the Son of God, who knows what it's like to be the victim of injustice, who knows what it's like to stand up to power, to face a corrupt system and be killed for it. He knows what it's like to be lynched. He was discarded. He was thrown away. He was wrongfully imprisoned, tortured, slaughtered. I'm not sure how you believe in a God remote from injustice and oppression either, but Christianity doesn't ask you to believe in that. That's why John Stott uh, who was a a famous pastor over in London, was able to say, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. Because in a real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? So when you see him, they say, Lord, when did we see you? When you see him on the cross, when you see him an innocent man condemned, when you see him making it possible for you to be acquitted and freed, it's the beauty of that Sight. Lord, when did we see you? On the cross, you saw me. And the beauty of that will transform your heart into a person who loves justice and mercy. If you go back to Micah 6, verse 8, in the call to worship, he has told you, O man, what is good. He's not only told us what's good, he's shown us what's good. Him. And he says, Your attitude toward the poor, the naked, the stranger, the prisoner, it, they reveal your attitude toward Jesus. To the extent we see ourselves as those things, whether we've physically been those things or not, we're all those things spiritually. And to the extent we see ourselves as that, we'll move toward those others who are, in fact, those things. So the question becomes, how connected are you to the least? Are you positioning yourself away from the least in this community of faith and in our community at large? Because could you be positioning yourself away from Jesus? An application, or a couple of applications. Uh, first, uh, community groups, community group leaders. I, I Notice, how, how do you hear needs in your community group? How do your ears and eyes become different as you know that these things are happening to real people right in front of you? Again, to, from one degree or another. Love always begins with seeing. Love Moves you to feel, love leads you to act and help, and community groups are a place where that type of love begins to put on flesh. So maybe it's being a, a champion or a mentor with a, a Jobs for Life class that Hartford Haven hosts so that Jesus would say, I was unemployed and you helped me get a job. Or maybe it's volunteering to be trained as an advocate at Life Choice, the pregnancy center down the road we partner with, so that Jesus would say, I was scared because I wanted an abortion, and you befriended me. Or maybe it's just sharing the gospel with your neighbor, befriending your neighbor to the the place where he would say, I was ignorant of what Christianity taught. I didn't believe in Jesus, and now I do, and you shared with me. Friends, a life poured out in doing justice for the poor, both the poor among us. He says, as long uh, to the extent you did it to the least of these my brothers a life poured out in doing justice for the poor among us and out there is the inevitable sign of any real true gospel faith the true servant of king jesus is the one who as they are entering into the joy of the master they're cheerfully doing justice loving mercy and walking humbly with god in service to others to the community of faith, and then to the world. That's where you enter the joy. That's what it means to be in the joy of the master, the kingdom. Our service to each other, Peter says in 1 Peter 4, again, our service to each other is so that, quote, in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you, Uh, we thank you that you were willing to become all the things uh, that we just read in this parable, Uh, poor, hungry, thirsty, naked, wrongfully imprisoned, so that you might free us. And would the sight of you giving your life uh, for us transform us, change us into a people who long to do this same work in our church and in our city for your honor and for your glory? We thank you for the joy that was set before you, which was us. You endured the cross, despising its shame. And we pray that we would increasingly know and experience the joy that you invite us into in the kingdom. Uh, that the kingdom would no longer be a a far kingdom, but it would be very near. And as we evidence it in our life together as your people, the community around us would see, look in, and wonder, and it would be an opportunity to invite them in as well. So do this work among us, we pray, by the power of the Spirit, and we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, The question for you is, who do you know him to be? Uh, And if you know him to be a kind, merciful, generous master, uh, then you will live life in light of that and you'll enter the joy that he offers uh, and you become a person who increasingly looks like one of these sheep, right? Uh, Who loves to put your life on those who are in those positions because you know yourself to be there as well. Uh, But if you know him to be stern, if you know him to be harsh, if you believe that to be the case, uh, then you'll live out of fear. Uh, And so this benediction is the confirmation that the first is actually true, not the second. Uh, And so receive these words, hold them tight. May they sink down into the depths of your soul and affect you as you go from here into this rest of this day and this week uh, and really for the rest of your future. So hear these words, receive them now. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.